Hello, Voices listeners. This is Eric Mann along with Channing Martinez. We're trying to make an urgent appeal to you to help us fight anti-Black racism at the MTA this Thursday between 9 and 11 or 12 o'clock. We need you to call Channing at thestrategycenter.org and send an email and say, yes, I'm going to go on to public comment to pressure Mayor Garcetti, Sheila Kuehl, Janice Hahn, Holly Mitchell, Hilda Solis. In many ways, the liberal Democratic Party establishment and say you must support the Bus Riders Union motion to stop all anti-Black activities at the MTA. Specifically, you have to stop the Black codes of conduct, which are up on the wall of every train. No food, no feet, no loitering. Basically, we will find something you did to either kick you off the train, fine you, or arrest you. And secondly, to stop enforcing so-called fair evasion tickets when you're giving them to 55 to 60% of the people who are Black. Now, we've told you this. This is not new material. I'm worried, as the host of a radio show, that you're not doing a damn thing and you're not really that upset about anti-Blackness. We know that to be a fact because we're the ones marching at the school board and we don't see you. We're the ones marching at the MTA and we don't see you. We need your help desperately. During the 1960s, there was a radio station called WBCN. It was the first kind of progressive rock station. And there was a disc jockey named Charles Lacordera and my friend Danny Schechter, the news dissector. When the police came to the house of Doug Miranda of the Black Panther Party, Charles Lacordera would say the police are at the house of Doug Miranda and 50 people would march to the house and protect him against police brutality. I'll be honest, we can't get five, 10 and 15 of you to simply send us your email send us your phone and said, we want to get involved. We desperately need your help. Today's Tuesday at three, Tuesday night, all day, Wednesday, Wednesday night. Get in touch with us, Channing at thestrategycenter.org and say, how can I stop anti-Blackness at the MTA? Now, let me give you some facts. And then Channing is going to tell you some of the motions that they're going to vote on. We have sent a letter to Stephanie Wiggins and to every board member to say, we need you to support the following motion. To lead a system-wide inquiry into anti-Black policies, working with the Bus Riders Union to help solve this problem, stop all fair collection and code of conduct citations and arrests, and move to a conductor-passenger relations representative in the buses and trains and get all the police off the trains. Now, I'm going to give you a few facts, but you should already by now be outraged. In 2018, 53% of the passengers cited for fare evasion were Black. In 2019, 53% of the passengers cited for fare evasions were Black. In 2020, 53% of the passengers cited for fare evasion were Black, even though the total was reduced. This is beyond incredible. 
that the MTA, regardless of its policy, seems to know how to get 53% of its Black passengers with statistical certainty, almost impossible to carry out mathematically unless it's willful racist intent. Then we move to LAPD suspect arrest data. In 2019, Black people were 63% of the Black suspects, which is Black racial, racial profiling. In 2020, the Black percentage of arrests was 56%, almost 300% of racial profiling. Now, the MTA has agreed. First, they agreed with us to not enforce the fares with sheriffs. This was our victory, because before then, there was also what's called stop and frisk, where first they would stop you for fare evasion, and then they would look into your records and arrest you for something else. Now they have people specifically only there to deal with the codes of conduct and the fare evasion. Next thing they did is they increased the racial percentage of Blacks and Latinos enforcing it. And guess what? Still, 50 to 60% of all the citations are going to Black people. So what does that mean? You can change the race, but you can't change the face of the MTA. And we have to stop any form of collection affairs, stopping terrorizing people on the trains and buses, move to a free transportation system where you have conductors, not police, no codes of conduct. And until you get rid of the no codes of conduct, no enforcement. If you don't help us between now and Thursday at nine, I'll be honest with you, the blood of black passengers is on your hands. If you want to help us, write to Channing at the strategycenter.org because he is the lead organizer of this campaign. Channing, any thoughts on the campaign? And then you can tell us about the four other motions in front of the MTA board this Thursday. Yeah, I think it's a great campaign and it explains what's happening. Every, it puts everything into context of what's happening. You know, sometimes you're sick and you don't know exactly what is wrong. And once you find the solution, everything falls into place and it makes sense, which happens a lot to folks who have cancer, right? The Metro has a cancer of anti-Blackness, um, and everything that they've done has been anti-Black in many ways, right? So, for example, everything that you named, right? But on top of that, Metro went to the state as an example to get red light cameras to enforce traffic tickets on left turns in the Black community, right? Who are those tickets going to go to? They're going to go to Black drivers, right? Uh, that means that you don't feel comfortable on, so on a public transit, you don't feel comfortable riding your car because you're going to either get stopped by the LAPD or you're going to get a ticket from the Metro. You don't feel comfortable renting in Los Angeles. It's basically Black genocide and Black push-out. So you've heard this before. You know, when the Jews cried out, it's genocide, a lot of people said, yeah, whatever. And the liberals stood by and did nothing. We're saying there's anti-Black genocide taking place in L.A., and voices, listeners are mainly part of the problem, not part of the solution. We need you to change that and get off your ass and do something because this is a life and death issue for the remaining Black people in this city. If I pissed you off, that's my intention. Send an email to channing at the strategycenter.org with your phone number. 
with your email, with a commitment that you will help us put pressure on these elected officials and you will testify at the CEO's report Thursday at 10 and Channing, who's the lead organizer, will help you do it. Now, Channing, there's other motions going on. We are creating some motion of ourselves. I mean, every time you testify at the, at the MTA board, they are now recognizing you. They're recognizing the Bus Riders Union. Uh, Stephanie Wiggins was very decent in our conversation with her and at least cares. I mean, we, we don't know what she will do and she's obligated to do, but I have to say that we both want to compliment her on the decency and thoughtfulness of the meeting. But now Thursday is the vote. So you know what our motion is? What are the other motions there? Which of them represent in the direction we want people to go? And are there motions that you think are reactionary? In my opinion, most of them are reactionary. <laughs> okay. Uh, but there are four, four motions. There, there's many motions going on, but there's four in particular that I'm paying attention to. One is the Code of Conduct Amendment. And we met with Stephanie. We talked to her about the statistics. One of the things that we saw is that Black people were receiving extremely a lot of tickets, about 53%, again, or 55% of tickets for taking up an extra seat. This is during 2020 when, you know, Dr. Fauci is saying six feet and you have every right to say, stay away from me for six feet. I don't want COVID, right? At that same time, Black people were doing that on the buses and they received tickets for doing so. So now there's an emotion that's basically striking the word seats and occupying more than one seat on the code of conduct. You know, to some extent, it is reactionary because you're taking that off that you're leaving, uh, can't get on the bus while smelling. You, you're leaving uh, feet on the seat on the codes of conduct. You're leaving so many black codes on the codes of conduct. But nonetheless, it is a good step in the right direction. Then there are three motions around law enforcement and security. One motion is proposing an extension of the current policing contract and adding another $75 million to their contract. So instead of the contract ending in December, 2022, which was already a six month extension, it would end in June, 2023. Wow. Um, it's noteworthy to say that the Metro Public Safety Advisor Committee voted 14 to zero to not support this and recommend that the board not renew the contract. Jenny, um, who's, who's on that public safety committee? <laughs> we are not on the public safety committee, but there are different folks. Um, most of them are just random bus riders, but there are some key folks, including at least two organizers from um, Alliance for Community Transit or ACT LA. There's two people from Advancement Project in LA. I'm very much good contact with them. And we're always communicating about the meetings. So just really quickly, what we're trying to say is that we don't want to sit on these MTA committees because we think they're co-optive. You know, we're the bus riders union. You, sit, you meet with us. What happens is historically, that when the Black Panthers march on there, they set up an advisory committee. When the when the you know King marches on you, you set up an advisory committee instead of meeting with Dr. King. So historically, this advisory committee has been very bad. But over time, because of our work and because there are decent people on the advisory committee, 
Now the advisory committee is giving them the advice they don't want to hear, which is end the police contract. So that's a victory for us. And, and congratulations to the people on that committee for not taking the MTA's advice, but instead giving them the advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And a lot of that has to do with me getting on the committee and pointing out things to the committee. Uh, for example, the most famous that everyone seems to have heard about is I used the narrative of slamming the metaphorical gun on the table when the actual police chief got on the board and basically told them, you have two weeks to decide whether you're going to extend the contract. Otherwise, you're going to be responsible for a million dollar fee for the metro. And they responded to that. They basically said, no, we're not going to respond. You give, you're facing us with the question. We choose not to renew. Um, so, and then there are two other motions. Um, one of them is the implementation of transit ambassador program. Um, and this goes back to the last conversation around policing, which Metro uh, passed a motion extending the policing contract to six months, and then also added $40 million to alternative policing. And so this committee basically took that and said, here's our recommendation for the 40 million, including transit ambassadors. It's also noteworthy to say that we came up with the idea of transit ambassadors. In fact, Eric came up with the idea of train conductors, right? Um, when we met with then CEO Phil Washington. And so now this committee is basically taking that idea and recommending it to the board. And the thing we want there is we like the idea of a transit ambassador beyond it, whatever you want to call it, who helps you with your packages instead of arresting you for having packages. If there's a, an argument between people on the train, stop acting like this is high crime. There's, there's arguments on, on the planes and they're not shooting those people, you know? So there's tension on the train between human beings, but basically they get along pretty well. And then the big issue is, can we get the police off the train, not just add them on top of the police? So that's number two. Why don't you go to number three, Channing? Well, no, that's number three. So number four, which we don't agree with them, is that Metro also has a contract for, what, $158 million to contract to private security, this company called RMI. Now, one sentence history, me and Barbara, we're organizing on the blue line to get people to do declarations or actual surveys on their experience with policing. When we got into the city of Compton, RMI is technically over that train, train security. Um, according to the board, they're only supposed to protect the property and make sure no one's breaking in. A few years ago, when Barbara Lott Holland and I were on the trains and buses collecting surveys and looking for stories of anti-Blackness on the Metro buses and trains, particularly on the Blue Line, RMI came up to us and began harassing us at least three or four different incidents. So Channing, I've spent the whole uh, week not feeling too well. So I sort of decided since I was in bed a lot, I, I had a film festival and I just started watching every film, you know, like five films a day. I saw a film about Pauli Murray. I don't know if you know who she is. Uh, a black transgender woman, born woman, who challenged everything, including she was arrested on the buses in 1940 
for challenging segregation 55 years before Rosa Parks. And she went to law school and challenged the whole concept of separate but equal at a time when the NAACP was not ready to do it. What's the point? That she did not get involved in the weeds and said, separate but unequal is inherently unequal. I don't want better separate. It took the NAACP 15 more years to agree with her. And yet you see all the pictures of Thurgood Marshall and everybody on the steps. Pauli Murray is not there. And they were her law professors and knew that she did it. But she drew the line is the point. Then I saw the film Respect, the life of Aretha Franklin, played by the amazing Jennifer Hudson. And a very strong character was her father, Reverend Franklin, played by Forrest Whitaker as a very domineering, dominant father figure in her life. In the film, he says to her, I believe in nonviolence. And she said, Dad, things have moved on. We have to have armed self-defense. And you have to either get out of the way or support the new militancy. I want to support Angela Davis. So right in the film, she's saying, which is great, and she did, support Angela Davis and try to even use money to get her out of jail. What's the point? In each case, the civil rights movement draws a line and asks you to move to the line. But the Bus Riders Union has been drawing this line for 30 years, and very frankly, it's been very hard to get people to take a stand on our, on our side, except for the bus riders. And a lot of people in the city respect us, but they don't do a damn thing because they're in with the Democratic Party establishment. So we are at a pretty urgent period right now. We have a chance to get this passed. Imagine if the MTA simply passed a motion to say, we have an anti-Blackness problem and we're gonna study anti-Blackness in every aspect, starting with fair collection, starting with the Black codes, and we're gonna stop enforcing any of the codes, we're gonna stop enforcing any of the fairs, and we're gonna look in the mirror. We're gonna introduce that motion whether any board member does or not, and you can help us, because when you go on public comment, you have one minute. You can say, I support the Bus Riders Union motion to have the MTA address its anti-Blackness, have no enforcement of the fairs, and no enforcement of the Black codes, and I think this is genocide. People are now testifying on our behalf. The challenge is to you, because throughout this week, we're going to be on the phone with many people who are going to show up and do the right thing. The question to you is, we are voices from the front lines, are you? With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with Voices from the Front Lines, with news from South Central to the Global South. The Los Angeles City Council is talking about criminalizing homeless encampments in the city. Councilmember Joe Buscaino, a former LAPD officer, is pushing for a ballot measure that would ban communities for the unhoused across city limits. The motion was before the full city council for a vote, but several council members spoke in opposition to it and sent it to a homeless committee instead. Buscaino says Angelinos are fed up with the endless number of encampments, and his office says many of his constituents strongly support the idea. 
Advocates for the unhoused say encampments exist because shelters are often dangerous places that force couples, families, and those with pets to be separated. Becky Dennison is an advocate for the unhoused. She says a ban will force those who feel safer in a community of residents to fend for themselves on dangerous city streets. We just have to stop saying anywhere but here. Unhoused folks are in our neighborhoods because we have failed policies for the last five decades plus. Buscaino would like to see a measure on next June's ballot for a lot that would require the city to prioritize emergency temporary shelter production over permanent housing. It also would prohibit encampments if enough shelter is available and offered. But ballot measures cost taxpayers millions of dollars and even when they win, require years of costly litigation. Russia has joined host country China and other countries in speaking out against politicizing the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. The U.S. has organized disinformation and political campaigns to disrupt the holding of the Olympic Games. There have also been talks of a boycott. Maria Zakharova with the Russian Foreign Ministry says sports should remain separate from politics. She says China will be an excellent host despite the challenges posed by the COVID epidemic. The motto of the 2022 Winter Games has been set as together for a shared future. And that future is in serious doubt. That's according to many of the activists and political organizations that denounced the lack of progress at the COP26 climate change summit held earlier this month in Glasgow. One video from the off-summit panel discussion is making the rounds on social media. In it, Vijay Prashad with the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research speaks out about the hypocrisy of former colonial nations. You know, coal was foisted on India. You were the ones that came and made us coal dependent. And then you left and now you dare to condescend to us. When I listened to Boris Johnson, when I listened to people like Joe Biden, when I listened even more to Emmanuel Macron, all I can think of is how condescending you are. You outsource production to China and then you say China is the carbon polluter. China's producing your buckets. China's producing your nuts and bolts. China's producing your phones. Try to produce it in your own countries and see your carbon emissions rise. You love lecturing us because you have a colonial mentality. In another video from the COP26 press conference, Abby Martin with Empire Files confronted House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The LA-based journalist says Pelosi makes good points about climate change, but then contradicts herself by voting in favor of a bloated military budget, which studies have shown expose the U.S. military as one of the largest polluters of carbon emissions. Pelosi dances around the question and ultimately defers to another panelist. The UN officially recognized that racism played a pivotal role in the Bolivian coup in 2019. The United Nations Committee Against Torture confirmed the occurrence of racist and discriminatory actions and that paramilitary groups incited hatred and were financed by the so-called pititas, upper middle class communities supported by security forces. The report found that de facto authorities used discriminatory speeches in social networks against indigenous peoples to restore the prominence of Catholicism in public life. And lastly, a new report by National World finds that Africa is being left behind during the global vaccine rollout. Nearly 50 countries across the continent are lagging behind in achieving the COVID-19 task force's goal of fully vaccinating 40% of their population by the end of the year. About 1.2 billion people across Africa remain unvaccinated, and experts fear Omicron, the new coronavirus variant, can wreak havoc on African nations. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce, now back to Eric Mann and Chenning Martinez in the studio. Thank you.
Many of you have told me how happy you were to hear the first installment of Mark Masaoka's life. Mark and I have been very close friends for over 25 years, and he was one of the leaders in the campaign to keep GM Van Nuys open, a leader in the Asian Pacific Islander movement, and he continues to be active today. On Voices, we're trying to focus on long-distance runners who are a model for people, people who have gone out of their way to say things more radical than the existing system. If you listen to Mark, there's also a tremendous clarity to his ideas. In the second installment of our conversation, he and I are going to focus on our lives as auto workers, in particular in the leadership of the campaign to keep GM Van Nuys open. Tell our listeners a little bit about the work, because, you know, you can say, oh, I'm going to go into the auto factory and organize, and they say, well, that's great. So here's this assembly line that's moving at what seems like the speed of light. When I first got there, I was like, are you, wait? by the time I figured out where my tools were, the car was gone, you know? So what were your first experiences to realize to be an auto worker, you had to be an auto worker? Well, uh, we started out hiring, being hired part-time because they just needed people to work a lot of the overtime. So, oh. But, but you know, you, you get in there and you see the assembly line going at roughly one car a minute. That's right. So, and they have engineers established that give you about 55, 56 seconds of work and gives you four or five seconds extra in case something happens. That's the, the discipline of the assembly line. But it's sort of mind. I mean, so your mind is free to do other things as you, your body just automatically puts the same part in it, you know, in every vehicle that goes by you. The plant itself is a, almost like a city or community of its yes, own, it is. you know, and, and people, you know, had money. So, you know, people, majority of people bought, owned their own homes, um, even a single parent like Marty, you know, people own their own homes. And, uh, you know, different people had all these, their own little gigs. You know, there's the bookies, you know, this and that. And so it was a very lively and en enjoyable kind of time. So that was, it was fun. And there were other left groups there, too. So there was, you know, other people were putting out leaflets and then other members of their organizations would get up at 5 in the morning like we did for other places and show up there at 5.30 in the morning passing out uh, leaflets and newspapers. So tens of thousands of blue-collar workers received socialist propaganda during that period of time and actually talked about it, you know, and talked about what they liked and projections of what was happening to industry at the time and what was going on in the United Auto Workers. And I think we were the, the Ford plant was the first major auto plant to be closed. This right. is in 1979 right. and finally closed in 1980. And so that's when we had our, our members of the league who were working in auto all sort of organize the locals to get locals to back that big um, mobilization to Sacramento to pass plant closing legislation, which you talk about in the dynamics with Willie Brown and, and his selling out of that effort. So there was some exhilaration at that and being part of seeing regular working people rise, understand, evaluate our situation, and, and come to the idea we needed to act. And they support a progressive 
candidate Ron Delia to be president of our local. He had never held any union position in his life. But these were locals where they were vibrant union locals and people would go to the union meetings and argue what should happen. And he got up and people liked what he had to say and they voted out the other guy and voted him in because they knew him. I mean, we knew all the people who That's were right. the leadership. And unlike these 30,000 mega locals that you see where you know nobody has a chance to have any impact on it, right. a single worker can get up and say what he thinks and he could get develop a following and he could get elected on the basis of his own fellow workers just listening to him and agreeing with what they had to say. So that was the kind of unionism that we had that is increasingly disappeared now. So people don't realize the camaraderie of the proletariat, right? I mean, the basic decency, I think, of the workers were a very kind group as a group. And as you say, the union meetings were tough, but they were also intellectually tough. You know, I mean, you had to make a good point in two or three minutes. So again, for our listeners, it's not nostalgia. It's about the loss of the industrial proletariat in the United States, the loss of the black and Latino industrial proletariat in LA that's radically changed the politics of the city and radically changed the condition of the black Chicano Latinx communities. Back then, you went to you worked at Ford, you'd send your kids to Cal State system, you'd had money, you had a house, you had a car, you could send your kid to piano lessons. And that's why the campaign to keep Van Eyes open was so successful because people got it. If this plant closes, th there is no plan B for the proletariat. So how'd you get to GM Van Nuys? They had signups. You know, you had to get there four in the morning. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, and uh, actually, they had this thing with the California EDD right. first. So they, they would screen you, and you'd have to come to two interviews. And they sort of did the screening for General Motors and get credit for <laughs> placing people in jobs. So right. you know, that, was, that, was a, that was a gig. So they, I came in with Ford experience. So, oh, also, yeah. so automatically, I was a good prospect. You know, I worked there, so I was one of the people to, to be given a good rating. So when I, I did get in line and went through that line, and they saw that I was on the name of, that I had been screened by EDD, then I was picked up because they needed people. And Yeah, and they were hiring. This was one of the mm -hmm. few places. The other thing is that we were building the Chevrolet Camaro and the Pontiac Firebirds. These were amazing, beautiful cars, muscle cars. And they were expensive, and so... At the time, we had 5,000 people working there, and the cars were selling like hotcakes. At a time when almost everybody is being closed, GM Van Nuys is putting on extra workers on the second shift so you could get trained and walk in. They hired 2,000 people, and in 90 years later, they laid off 2,000 people. We were not making a good car. Right. We were making Cadillac. That was really a Chevrolet. The Cimarron. Yes, the Cimarron. And all the workers, you know, the workers are so smart. They're saying, they say, what's the difference between a Cimarron and the, whatever the Chevy we're making? I said, what? They say, 30 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that was their joke. They said the same part. When the Chevy comes down, I put in the same exact part. And once in a while, there's something to try to make it look like a Cadillac. So it didn't fool the workers. It didn't fool the public. And we were dead. And I was so depressed. So me and Mark are now at GM Van Nuys through our own circuitous relationship. Tell 
the audience how you remember the beginning of the anti-Japanese campaign that General Motors and the UAW ran and your memory of what we tried to do in the GM Van Nuys campaign on that. Well, at Ford, we were in this, you know, the big cafeteria, and this is when they were announcing the first wave, first wave of layoffs, and they showed a graph of American car company sales, and it's sloping downward, and right. they showed a graph of the Japanese car sales sloping upward, and they say, this is why we're having this layoff, and this is why the plant's in jeopardy. And it has nothing to do with your work, but this is what's, this is what's happening, and and this, these are the, the pressures that Ford Motor Company is under right now. Um, and so I was happened to be seen by this other Japanese-American guy who said, do you think people are going to jump us afterwards? I said, no, I mean, these people know us, you know what I mean? They're not, you know, so that was the sense, but people were really quiet just out of that. And then, of course, you know, within months, the, the shift was, you know, half of half the plant was laid off. In a few more months, the whole plant was closed. But it was still at the beginning of it, so it wasn't, it wasn't clear how deep it was going to go. Uh, and that, that just sort of deepened after plant after plant closed down throughout the country. But I got hired on at General Motors, and, uh, and you know, people were, the, the people there, they'd been working already, so they knew it was bad, but, you know, the, the people didn't think it would ever affect them. Right. And uh, until it, all these other plants kept falling like dominoes in California. But this was still, you know, majority people of color plant. And so people knew what racism was. You had a lot of blacks, especially from Southgate there, and right. large Latino population. Whites were about 25% of the plant. So it never reached the decibel level of hostility that it did in, in plants in the Midwest. I remember it. When you walked into GM, there was a bear. His name was B.B. B-E-B-I. Better effort beats imports. And we're all supposed to get together and beat the imports. We're at war with the imports. There was a time where there was a growing anti-Japanese turn in the union. And I remember you and me and Mike Gomez and, thank God, Jake Flukers. So I'm a Jew, you're Japanese-American, Mike's Latino, and Jake is black. And we were worried. We were worried that this was going to, the international was trying to get us to not take on General Motors, but to say, well, if anything bad happens, it's because they're Japanese. And General Motors was exploiting that to say, that's why you're not working hard enough. And I remember we put out flyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is sick. We don't like this. And again, what people don't understand is we went person to person on the line. We didn't just leaflet the plant. I mean, I would have, I must have had 200 conversations with people about anti-Japanese sentiment. I talked about being a Jew, and I can feel it. I can feel it. I just hate this. I can feel it raging up, you know what I mean, the beginning of a pogrom. And then, Mark, if I could say, you're also a communist and Japanese-American. You're working on the plant. And we won the argument. That was the point. At union meetings, we talked about it, right? Like you were saying, the unions were very different. We had a wonderful president, Pete Beltran, and it, it died down because we made it die down. You know, I mean, it reached the point where the next time the company went, yeah, we heard that one. No, it's not, we're not buying this one. I was very proud. And one of the things I wanted to say about my experience about being a communist 
And before that, just being an anti-imperialist organizer, is we believed in transformational organizing. We set up the first women's committee inside the union. We did anti, we fought anti-Japanese chauvinism. And then we also fought for the equality of languages, where the Latino workers were very mad at the Chicano workers, because the Chicanos could speak English, and they didn't, some of them were even embarrassed by the Mexicanos, who were, you know, monolingual, you know, and Manuel Hurtado built this movement of, of, of progressive Mexicanos who said, we want the union, all the materials have to be translated, and union, we need a translator at the union. We won that fight. So people, you know, people don't realize what organizing is really a lot around one-on-one deep conversations with people to transform their consciousness, but they have to be open to being transformed. You're not, you know, so as you said, heavily Latino, heavily black, 15% women, these were people that were open to having their minds changed. Um, I do remember, though, when the Vincent Chin killing came yeah. up, that we made an issue of that. Yes. And that the union sent a delegation really? to the Justice for Vincent Chin a rally that was held downtown Los Angeles. And we I remember that, yeah. And we had, you know, the, the, the blessings of the, the, the union at that time. So those conversations I, I remember around that same period of time and how um, the union adopted that as, as as leftists and communists across the country who were working in auto plants courageously in some of these Midwestern states. That's right. Like people associated with labor notes stood up and argued against the, the blaming of the Japanese workers and the Japanese for the travails of the U.S. auto industry. Yeah, I mean, one thing is interesting is that I've been thinking about who are the groups I think did the best job. <laughs> So I definitely think the League of Revolutionary Struggle, but I also think the uh, IS, Independent Socialists, Mm -hmm. who we didn't like ideologically. I didn't. There were Trotskyists and blah, 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 and I didn't like some things about them, but they ran labor notes. They They actually sent their people into the factories. They got elected, and they were good people, and that became one of my fights with the League of Revolutionary Struggle, which is... They wanted me to have more fights with other groups, people who I liked. You know, this well, this guy is a Trotskyist. I said, yeah, but so what? This guy, communist, he's with the Communist Workers Party. He's pro-Soviet. So I do think we came out of the order workers, that is, more than at times the party. We understood who was real and who wasn't. If you had a base, you got the respect. I want to talk about your role with black workers. Because you were in the body shop. You got elected to delegate. Do you ever get elected committeemen? No. Okay. But you had a tremendous black base in the plant. I mean, the black workers really, really liked you. And you were in the hardest, right? You were in body shop. Well, I was still pretty new to the auto work. But I think what happened was when the Southgate people came, they were not eligible to run or, or otherwise. Right, right. You know, so they, they looked around and said, who do we like here? And then, so they settled on me. But it was a diverse group of people. It was black Southgate workers primarily because, you know, they didn't know other workers there. But the thing was, you know, when you work alongside people, the people who supported me ideologically were all over the place. And some were very conservative, 
African-American workers, you know, very church-oriented. They were opposed to abortion. Some were former domestic workers because right. at that time, you know, they were pushed out of the that field, single women, mothers. That's right. Um, so it was, it was a, a very mixed kind of grouping of people, but... You know, uh, the assistant committee men was not a huge position, and so I got elected, and, and, you know, and that's a voice within the union. You and I both had great affection for the black workers at the plant because they had come over from Southgate, and a lot of the GM Latinos were not as welcoming as they should have been. Most of the black workers did not come out of GM Van Nuys. They came when Southgate was closed. About 500 black workers came over, and you and I did welcome them. And they remembered that. And you and I fought for them. And over time, stuff got worked out, as it all, you know, like there's tension. But I know the base you had in the body shop, and I know the base you had in the, in the black workers group, and they had great admiration for you, and they knew who you were, and they saw you as a fighter for the people and being very pro-black. You should be very proud of it, Mark. I mean it. So... What I'm trying to convey here is the complexity of living. We lived there. We lived there eight, ten, sometimes ten hours with the same group of 2,000 workers on a second shift. And if you were a good worker, people would say, I'll listen to your criticism of GM. I'll listen to your criticism of the union. But we paid good money to build a good car. And I expect everybody, revolutionary or not revolutionary, show up on time. I don't like guys coming in late. I don't like guys and women leaving their tools around for the second and the next shift. You know, there was a lot of camaraderie around the concept of work. Talk about that, about the pressure to be a good worker. I think to have the respect of your fellow workers, you had to be a serious worker for the task that was involved. And that was important because people did want to make a good product uh, at the plant. So I think that was that was important, even though you protected the, the not so good workers. But that was that was a separate issue from if you wanted to be a leader, you needed to be a good worker and you know address the issues of how to do discipline in a, in a union and humanitarian way. So we had progressive discipline, and that was you know, and that was suitable for the different steps that it took, um, and 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 help for people with substance abuse issues. But still, people had a high standard for whom they wanted to represent the union in the, the union and, and public sphere. You just heard, the voice you just heard was that of Mark Masaoka, a leader in the United Auto Workers and the New Directions Movement, with me, a participant in the New Communist Movement and the League of Revolutionary Struggle, and a leading organizer and activists in the Asian Pacific Islander movement, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and continuing into today. We hope you enjoyed it, and yes, there will be a part three, where next week Mark is going to talk about the present and where he sees the movement going in the future. As you know, we've been trying to add the Revolutionary Symphony as one of the elements to Voices from the Frontlines. We don't want music as just an intro and an outro, but an integral part of our work. We've already played 
Yumasakela, Stimela. Last time we played Hector Lavoe, Aguanele. And today we're very happy to play another one of my favorites called Song for My Father by Horace Silver. I first met Horace Silver and Song for My Father at the Village Gate, probably around 1964, shortly after he wrote it. Um, the Village Gate is on 7th Avenue in Greenwich Village. Until I met Horace Silver and Herbie Mann, his greatest attraction was I got to meet Jean-Paul Bomondo and Ursula Andrus when they were having their affair. They were not particularly interested in me, but they were at the at the village vanguard at the time. And Horace Silver is quite an amazing person. The first thing is, this is the, the question of constant construction of groups. In the group you hear today playing it, Horace Silver, of course, is on piano and lead. Uh, Corno Jones is on trumpet. Listen to the sax solo, the tenor sax solo by Joe Henderson, Teddy Smith on bass, Roger Humphreys on drums. The origin of the song is that Horace Silver went to Brazil. He must have seen his father there for some reason. As he explains, my mother was Irish and Negro. My father was of Portuguese origin from the Cape Verde Islands. But Cape Verde was primarily a black African island under Portuguese control. In looking at his father, he's pretty clearly black as you'll see on the cover of the album. It's an amazing song that speaks for itself, but in terms of this whole thing, and we also played Monin by Art Blakey and Bobby Timmons. This is what's called straight ahead jazz or hard bop jazz, where there's a lot of clear opening, melodic opening, followed by incredible solos. Then everybody comes back for the reprise, and then you see everybody come in again and play the solo and then come in in the end. I keep finding this so important because of the concept of organizing well, we all sing with the choir, but then find our own voice. But this is a particularly haunting song, and we hope you enjoy Horace Silver, Song for My Father.
Jenny Martinez and Barbara Holland run the Strategy and Soul Movement Center generally every Saturday and Sunday in particular, and sometimes on Friday because we now have COVID testing. And we're trying to create, of course, a community based on politics and art. And Channing is definitely the director of organizing and constantly trying to make something happen. So what are the coming attractions for this weekend, Channing? Sure. So we're open every Friday and Saturday, uh, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And we recently started doing COVID testing in front of strategy and so. And so we definitely, especially as the holidays are coming up, I think it's so important that everyone continue to get tested, even if you've gotten a third vaccine. And I've been getting tested every week, partially because it's required to do taking action, go on LUSD campuses. This Sunday, though, we're going to be open for a special event, which is Ciclavia. And what happens is that the Metro, along with a lot of different groups, basically opens up one street in particular in Los Angeles and basically says no cars on that street. 
and invites everyone to bring their bikes, their families, their skates, and whatever other mode of mobility that you want to bring and just have a great day. It's also a good opportunity for anything on that corridor to open up and feature what they're doing. So uh, this event is going to be along uh, King Boulevard, basically towards both ends, from the start of King on King Boulevard and Central, down to King and Crenshaw, and then turning up to Expo and Strategy and Soul plans to be open with all of its glory, as we always are. Um, so we're going to have speakers and a program outside. We're going to have a bookstore outside. We're inviting Sola, South LA Food Co-op to actually come have a booth. Uh, we're inviting one of our members, uh, Yayi Hats, to come bend her hats. And then we're going to have our bikes as well. So we might, you know, jump in there and do a little bit of biking as well. Well, Strategy in the Soul is at 3546 Martin Luther King. It's really right off the corner of King and Crenshaw. And also the other side street is called McClung. We'd love you as Voices listeners to just regularly say at least once a month, on a Friday or Saturday, I'm going to go to Strategy and Soul. They have great books. They have great food. We're trying to have better, you know, coffee and food and stuff. We have, And we have a lot of people with different ideas. South OA Food Co-op. So please join us. It's another way of building a community. And it's one more thing. It's funny because Ciclavia for many years was sort of, in my opinion, again, under the thumb of the MTA which was like, let's all have one day of no cars, no way, even though the strategy sent out a campaign, no cars, no way. But each time these groups are getting closer to the strategy center, as they understand, they don't want to have no cars, no way for one day. They really want a society with no cars, no way. So I think, is it fair to say, Channing, again, through your organizing and others, that you're building stronger alliances with Ciclavia? I think it's fair to say I'm building strong alliances with people around Ciclavia. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, in my opinion, they could have approached us to have strategies have been one of their stops. They did not. But they did approach us to ask us to be open um, and have things out on the sidewalk, which I think is a step in the right direction. Well, you know what organizing is? moving people one step further than they want to go, always in the right direction. That's right. That's so right. folks, this has been a pretty, uh, we think it's been a really important show. We're asking you, the biggest takeaway is to be in touch with, I think the really great Channing Martinez at Channing at the strategycenter.org and say, I want to get involved with this MTA protest on Thursday. I want to come out over the weekend and visit you at Strategy and Soul. I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Enjoy the really amazing life of Mark Masaoka, who I'm happy to say is alive and well and funny and articulate. Enjoy the amazing Horace Silver. And also enjoy Ernesto Arce, who's really a new star in our, in our horizon, who's South Central Third World News. Makes me a lot happy and makes the show a lot better. So this is Eric Mann, your host, saying... All power to the people. And as Aretha Franklin said, let's all go out and support Angela Davis and the Strategy Center. Take good care of yourself.